I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 25th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that the combination of strength and understanding of an honorable man and the gentle and quiet spirit of a beautiful chaste woman make for a combination that the Lord loves and blesses in family situations. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Today, which is May 16th of 2010, our lesson is the 25th uh, division in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, and the text is in the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus, and the 25th and 26th verses, which read as follows. Then Zephorah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So the Lord let Moses go. Then Zephora said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our lesson before the chronological department departure that we took from our sermon series last week for Mother's Day, we discussed the fact that after the descendants of Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, coexisted with the Egyptians for 300 years, a new pharaoh arose in Egypt that did not know his history and was not aware of the fact that the prosperity of the Egyptians was a function of their affiliation with the children of Israel. Rather than being grateful for the participation of the Israelites in their society, this new pharaoh sought to oppress the Israelites because the Israelites were fertile and growing in their numbers faster than the Egyptians. The new pharaoh thought that hard work would keep the Israelites from multiplying, and so he enslaved the Israelites, condemning them to hard labor building his treasure city. Hard labor, however, proved to be an aphrodisiac to the Israelites, and their numbers continued to grow. 
The Pharaoh then called the midwives that attended the Israelite women giving birth and commanded them to abort the male Israelite babies as they were born. But the midwives refused to do so. The midwives lied to the Pharaoh to defend their decision, saying that the Israelite women bore their children too quickly to abort the birth process. So the Pharaoh moved to the final solution. Exodus chapter 1 verse 22 records, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now the Pharaoh's heinous plan showed that he had no compassion for Hebrew babies, as his plan was to decrease the numbers of the Israelites at any cost, including the cost of causing mothers to drown their own children. However, the Pharaoh's plan resulted in the participation of both he and his daughter in the upbringing of the Israelite that was the spearhead, the destruction of Egypt. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1 records, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Now Levi was one of the sons of Israel after whom the Israelites were named. The man and his wife were, were Israelites of the house, the tribe, the family of Israel's son Levi. The lection continues in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, since the Pharaoh commanded the Israelites to cast their male children into the river, the Israelite mother followed the letter of the Pharaoh's instructions, although not exactly in the way that the Pharaoh intended. But God was in her plan as the lection continues in Exodus chapter 2, verse 5, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Isaiah 49 and 15 tells us, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, Yet I will not forget you. And this passage of scripture transmits the message to us that generally speaking, women have compassion on nursing children, although this is not always the case. It is once again the time of year in which supposedly loving parents kill their babies by forgetting that they exist. One mother recently forgot her 18-month-old baby for three consecutive hours. Now, the usual excuse is, I'm not the one who drops him off at daycare, so I forgot he was in the back seat. But in this particular case, she wasn't on the way to work or to daycare when this happened. She was unloading groceries from her car. The woman's excuse was, I got sidetracked. For three entire hours, she was sidetracked and forgot her little baby existed. 
She was busy inside of her house while inside of her car it got hotter and hotter and hotter. I wonder what that poor little baby's thoughts were while the heat grew more and more unbearable inside of that car. I can imagine his eyes darting around, trying frantically to see where his mother went. What do you think was in his mind as the tears rolled down his cheeks as he waved his arms and wailed for someone to help him. And what, I wonder, was so important to this woman that for three hours it slipped her mind that she was a mother? What task or conversation was so vital that for three hours it never dawned on her that she, she didn't hear her 18-month-old playing, crying, or laughing? For three hours, she didn't wonder if he needed a snack or if his diaper needed changing, or if he was getting into the dog food. Now, just as God anticipated in Isaiah 49 and 15, the forgetfulness of that mother resulted in the demise of her precious baby. He faced death all alone in a hot car because his mother was sidetracked and forgot. What could possibly be so important that it could push your toddler completely out of your thoughts. Could you imagine that an hour could pass with you not wondering about your toddler's needs, comfort, or happiness? A mother's life, actions, thoughts, emotion, and sense of value in this world should orbit around the sun of her child's needs and happiness. That is what a mother's love is. No parent is perfect, and all of us are flawed in some way, but it is inexcusable to be so sidetracked that you forget that you are a parent with a child in your immediate care. What kind of parent can be so easily distracted from the most important task that God can give a human being? And although the Pharaoh's plan to exterminate the Israelites was as cruel and heartless as the mother that forgot her child, when the Pharaoh's daughter saw the child and heard him crying, she actually had the compassion that God expects mothers to have. Exodus chapter 2 verse 5 tells us, And when the Pharaoh's daughter opened the ark, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Genesis fourteen thirteen refers to Abraham as the first Hebrew, and the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham's sons Isaac and his grandson Israel, are of the Hebrew lineage. The Pharaoh's daughter knew that her father's plan to kill the male infant Hebrew knew her father's plan to kill the male infant Hebrews. She instinctively recognized the evil in it. She acknowledged the ingenuity of the Hebrew woman that thwarted the evil of her father's law while following the letter of it and she recognized her responsibility to follow in the woman's footsteps and rescue her child. The child's sister was watching, and as the lecture continued in Exodus chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the, chi the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only did God reward the Israelite woman by saving her child, God also gave the woman custody of her child so that she could provide him with the sustenance from her own body that she was designed to provide. And while other male Hebrew babies were drowning in the river, this child's mother was being paid for nursing her own child with funds from the Pharaoh that ordered him drowned. Proverbs 13.22 tells us, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And in this case, the Pharaoh's wealth continued to go to raise his nemesis. Exodus chapter 2, verse 10 through 12 records, And the child grew, and his mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So although Moses was raised in the house of the Pharaoh, he maintained his allegiance to the Hebrew people. Unfortunately, all of the Hebrews did not return Moses' allegiance, as Exodus chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 records. And when Moses went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. The defensiveness of evildoers often leads to the intimidation of the righteous. But those of us that stand for the truth may have to stand up to intimidation and face it down. And although Deuteronomy 3.22 tells us, you must not fear them, for the Lord God himself fights for you, Moses was afraid. Because although he knew the Israelites and he knew the Pharaoh, he had not yet met the Lord. As Exodus 2.15 tells us, when the Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses but Moses fled from the face of the Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now Moses went to the well because he knew from the history of Jacob that he could not only find water at the well, but he could also find companionship as well, as the well was the place in which Jacob met Rachel. Exodus chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 records, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So Moses watched as the women came and drew water, which was traditionally women's work, and then he saw the shepherds stealing the benefits of the women's work. Moses' natural mother was a woman that worked to save him as an infant. 
His adopted mother was a woman that worked to save him as a child and raise him to maturity. And Moses was a grown man with compassion for women and with strength and ability. Moses left Egypt after defending an Israelite that was being abused and his upbringing in Egypt taught him to defend those that needed defending. Isaiah 117 instructs, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So Moses did. And his training in Egyptian combat enabled him to kill the Egyptian oppressor and also also gave him the skill to protect the daughters of the priest of Midian. And Moses did not extract any tribute from them, but rather helped them complete their task and sent them on their way. Our takeaway point in our sermon series indicates that husbands and wives are to form cooperative coalitions with one another. Men bring strength and understanding to the relationship as Moses demonstrated here. And the Lord instructs men in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, which says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. But even as men are to honor their wives with the benefit of their strength, Men have needs that their wives are to meet. As 1 Peter chapter 1, 3, verse 1 through 4 records, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The combination of strength and understanding of an honorable man and the gentle and quiet spirit of a beautiful, chaste woman make for a combination that the Lord loves and blesses in family situations. And men that know how to treat women want strong, understanding husbands for their daughters. As Exodus chapter 2, verse 18 through 20 records, When the priest of Midian's daughters came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. The priest of Midian had a flock of sheep and seven daughters to tend them. He understood the benefit of having a man of strength, skill, and ability to protect his daughters. And I mentioned in the lesson last week that young women benefit when they rely on their wise fathers to help them in their mate selection. Fathers are generally not in love with their daughter's boyfriends, but have both the objectivity to alert their daughters to a bad choice and the strength to deny an inappropriate young man access to their daughter. But fathers rejoice 
when an appropriately strong and productive young man respectfully seeks access to their daughter. So the priest of Midian wanted to meet Moses and to assess his acceptability. And he was pleased with that which he found. As Exodus chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 records, Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Moses left his home in Egypt and moved to the strange land of Midian, a place in which he found a wife and made a family. Genesis 2.18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A Virginia Commonwealth University study found that married men earn 22% more than their similarly experienced but single colleagues. Married men receive higher performance ratings and faster promotion than bachelors, a 2005 study of U.S. Navy officers reported. According to a recent U.S. Department of Justice report, male victims of violent crime are nearly four times more likely to be single than married. In 2006, British researchers reviewed the sexual habits of men in 38 countries and found that in every country, married men have more sex than unmarried men. And in a Norwegian study, divorced and never married male cancer patients had 11 and 16% higher mortality rates, respectively, than married men. A UCLA study found that people in generally excellent health were 88% more likely to die over the eight-year study period if they were single. And as the Bible teaches, it is not good for a man to be alone. The plan of God is that a man has a mate with which to share his life. And before the Lord sent Moses back to the Pharaoh to rescue his people, the Lord gave Moses a helper and a son. But Moses failed to honor God in one part of his family life. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 9 through 12, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Now Moses, being raised by a Hebrew mother, was circumcised on the eighth day. But Moses' son, being raised by a Midianite mother rather than a Hebrew, did not receive the sign of the covenant in his flesh, as did Moses. And although God chose Moses to rescue the descendants of Israel from Egyptian slavery, God also chose not to use an unclean vessel. God commanded all the descendants of Abraham through the promised line of Isaac, 
in Genesis chapter 17, verse 13 and 14, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And Moses has not taken care of the circumcision of his son, thus breaking the covenant of the Lord. Moses' Midianite wife did not want her son circumcised, for that was not the practice of the Midianites. The Midianites were the descendants of Abraham's wife Keturah, whom Abraham married after Sarah died, and whose children were not considered heirs by Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, verse 4 through 6 records, And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanak, Abiah, and Eldah. The, all these were the son, children of Keturah, and Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. So Keturah was not considered as a wife. She was a concubine, which is a woman with which a man lives that does not have the status of a wife. In our day, we would call Keturah a shaka. And while Abraham gave gifts to his illegitimate children, he gave his inheritance, his relationship with God, and the covenant of circumcision to his son Isaac. The sons of his concubines were hostile to the relationship between Abraham and Isaac and did not keep the covenant that God gave to Abraham. So Moses' son was uncircumcised because his Midianite mother objected to the circumcision. However, Moses was supposed to be the man in his family and see to his son's religious upbringing and training. God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And God held Moses responsible for the religious upbringing of his son, just as God will hold us responsible for the religious upbringing of our children. In our society, in which the separation of church and state is stressed, many parents are embarrassed to obtain religious training for their children and use the excuse that their children will benefit from the opportunity to make their own choices about religion when they reach chronological maturity. However, when parents do not train their children in matters of religion, it is unlikely 
that their children will choose to be religious when they are old enough to make that choice. And one of the reasons that the Lord tells us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers is that if we are not serious enough about our own religion to marry someone with whom we can share it, it is unlikely that our children will take our religion tradition seriously enough to carry it on since we did not. When one parent tells their child that they have religious obligation and the other parent tells the child that he or she does not, the child tends to go in the direction of the least effort. And God was watching. Exodus chapter 4 verse 19 to 24 tells us, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh that I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Now the Lord sent Moses to do a work for him. But Moses' son was uncircumcised in his camp, which was against the law of the Lord. So the Lord sought to kill Moses for his disobedience to the covenant. But Exodus chapter 4, verse 25 and 26 tells us, Then Zephora took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So the Lord let Moses go. Then Zephora said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And in Gethsemane, Jesus faced a similar circumstance. God was sending Jesus not to the Pharaoh as he sent Moses, but to the cross of Calvary to redeem us from our sins. But just as Moses was not fully prepared, Jesus was not fully prepared. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 42 and 44 records, Coming out, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When Jesus came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And just as Moses' son shed his blood so that Moses could prepare to meet the Pharaoh, Jesus shed bloody sweat so that he could prepare to meet the cross. And God was watching. Luke twenty-two forty-three tells us, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. 
And as the Lord sent an angel to Moses to kill him because of his omission, the Lord sent an angel to strengthen Jesus because of his prayer. And just as Moses was prepared to see the Pharaoh after his son was circumcised, Jesus was prepared to see the cross after he prayed and received strength from the Lord. Luke 22, 45 through 50 tells us when Jesus rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then Jesus said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus was prepared. Although he had disciples that were willing to fight and he had all power in his hands, Jesus was prepared to do the will of God and give his life. After Jesus asked God to take the cross from him, but confessed his willingness to do the will of God, God gave Jesus the strength to endure the cross, the mocking, the beating, the crown of thorns, and even the three-hour period when the sun didn't shine and God was pouring down all of his wrath against sin on Jesus Christ. Jesus was prepared for the cross. He stopped his disciples from defending him and gave himself to those that came to arrest him. As Luke chapter 23 through 51 through 53 tells us, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And the Jews and the devil took full advantage of their hour and the power of darkness. They crucified Jesus. They stretched him wide. They hung him high. And then after the very last sin was paid for, Jesus hung his head on in the locks on his shoulder and he died. They dropped him low and they shoved him in a borrowed tomb. The Lord sent Jesus to do a work for him and Jesus completed the work that he was sent to do. He gave his life that your sins and my sins might be forgiven. And Jesus was successful and I know that he was because three days later, God raised Jesus physically from his borrowed tomb with all power in heaven and earth in his hand. Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, gave them the parameters by which the church was to be established, and then preached his message to over 500 men at once, according to the testimony of the apostle Paul. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the historical accounts of these events, have been preached from that time to this one, including today. And just as God sent Moses to the Pharaoh to save the children of Israel from Egyptian slavery, 
God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sins. As he tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And although the world is going to hell, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. God is ready to receive those that believe in Jesus today, just as he was 2000 years ago out on the hill called Calvary. So let us accept God's circumcision in our hearts and renounce the sin of the world and put on our faith and trust in Jesus. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Christ God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we thank you for the covenant of circumcision for the Jews and the circumcision of our hearts that you have given us through the ministry and the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us, help us to live up to the benefits of these ceremonies. Give us ceremonial cleanness and then cleanse our minds and our hearts that we might be able to follow your commandments, that we might be able to keep your word, that we might be able to live, live lives that are pleasing in your sight to your honor and your glory, and that we might affect someone who sees that which we do, some man, some woman, some boy or some girl, that they might come cry, what must I do to be saved? And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place. And then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.